Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Take It Black 2021. Uh, I'm Jack Lattimore and I'm joined for this episode by The Point's host, Shani Wellington. <laughs> Got a ring to it, doesn't it? <laughs> Goes all right, doesn't it? <laughs> for the first time, no, thank you. <laughs> welcome to me and hello to all your listeners. Thanks for having me on again. Well, hopefully we'll hear more from you this year than last year as well. Mm. Um, the Point launched this week. How did it go? How, how do you think you went? Gee, good, I think, I hope, <laughs> as oh, far as good. I know, as, you know, as long as everyone's not lying to me with their feedback. But no, you know. It looked it was, good on camera. Oh, didn't it? You know, we've got a whole new layout, new colour scheme, new graphics. We had AR, augmented reality, for the first time. So yeah, you can't. Was, pretty special. You can't stand too far to the right because you'll go into the map that they've got going on now. It's really cool and, you know, it really gives people kind of an, a real idea of where the stories are and kind of having that visual and, you know, instead of speaking to a screen and we have live guests uh, coming in, they're, they're popping up out of the air, very, you know, Star Wars of us now, but that's the future and the point is all over it. So, yeah, it's really exciting to be part of this kind of bigger, bolder, flashier season. Well, speaking of standing, executive producer Jordan Perry has pulled the couches out of the studio. Mm, hey, you should Stand see. up for an hour. You should see the shoes I'm wearing in it too, these gold flashy Gorman ones. And, gee, I tell you, they are not built for comfort. So, <laughs> you know, we are, we, luckily we have really hard-hitting, you know, seven-minute extensive packages going on. So when we throw into that, I'm um, making the most of the time in between getting comfy to sit back and watch them because, you know, the time <laughs> off our feet is just precious yes. at this point. <laughs> well, Joan will be in there making sure that uh, you and JP are getting foot massages. Hey, well, we'll put that on the on the work card because, you know, <laughs> JP's getting on. He's not a young fella anymore. So, oh, <laughs> so you know, he's going to be needing it. You'll, you'll watch it, in, you know, mid-season, the midway point, and poor JP will have a lean on my shoulder halfway <laughs> through, you know. His legs will be given out on him, but yeah, hopefully you're not listening to this. <laughs> well, you caught up with uh, JP for a bit of promo action for the point. Um, and there was a bit of 20 questions going on. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. You know, a bit of a get to know you. Um, yeah. well, what were some of the questions? What, what are we talking? Well, they were thro just thrown at us. So a lot of them were, you know, those kind of NRL or AFL, which I'm NRL through and through. There was a point there where... Um, I had to sing Treaty and he had to carry on the lines. There were th some about who you would go to dinner with, um, what it means to, what your country means to you. There was a heap of them. There was one that asked me to do a Kiwi accent, which I really hope they cut out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up the singing because uh, you've got a pretty good voice. So oh, who says? <laughs> Didn't you do? You were on that uh, that Twitter thing, mob scene. Oh, right? Koori karaoke. Koori karaoke. Yeah, look, they didn't they didn't get me on the to co-host the point because of my singing. I'll tell you that much. But you know, I love to get a part of things. Did you got up there, didn't you, Jack? Uh, I did a very tight edit that had me not really singing, but um, <laughs> lip syncing or something. This is where the podcast uh, overlords insert Jack's uh, little clip <laughs> of him singing. <laughs> And well, play. <laughs> we're not going to do that, but we are going to throw to some of the 20 questions that you and JP hit each other with. Oh, go on then. Hello, everyone. I'm John Paul Janke, co-host of The Point. 
with the new co-host of The Point. Shani Wellington. G'day, everyone. And we thought we'd use this opportunity to get to know you a bit better, but you've got some questions from me. First off, JP Jenky, describe your country in three words. Just three. Don't be rattling off. <sighs> All right. Always was. Always was. That's three to me. <laughs> That's three <laughs> syllables, brother. <laughs> Always will be then. Always will be. All right, he's taking the first one okay. out. There All we right. go. AFL or NRL? NRL always. Which team? South Sydney till I die. It's hereditary, so up the bunnies. What is your coffee order? Oh, just a nice hot one, first thing in the morning, flat white, or even Nescafe. Love Nescafe. Who would be your dream person uh, to interview, Shani? <laughs> oh, I'm just living the dream right now, aren't I, JP? I'd love to sit down with Kamala Harris at the moment. This one is more of a prompt than a question. Let's do a perfect high five on the first go. Oh. You ready? What if we don't? That's right. Okay. They'll right. embrace right. us for our oh, mistakes. Beautiful. All right, one of us is carrying the weight there, I think. <laughs> Name a time when you were the only black fella in the room. The only black fella. Well, I did recently work as a political correspondent, so it did feel like I was the only black fella in the room a lot of the time down there, but we're seeing a shift in that. So the big the big parliament house, it felt that way a lot of the time, but, you know. Yeah, a couple of those press conferences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. JP, which TV show would you bring back for another season? Oh, Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's Island, absolutely. Yeah. Got to find out what happens. Absolutely. <laughs> Not just for one season, <laughs> ten seasons. Oh, he had that one ready to go, didn't he? Big oh, Gilligan's fan. So describe your country now in three words. Instead three of my words. two and a half. I was about to say, I'll stick to the to the brief here. Okay. Uh, three words. Home. Is salt water one word or two words? I'll go with one. Home. So quickly. Salt water. Jarringer. Let's oh. go the name, yeah. Oh. We'll go real straight down the line there. Straight yeah. to it. Straight yeah. to it. All right. Who is an inspiring black fella that people should know more about? Oh, for me, it's got to be Benelong. Benelong, first, first sort of diplomat, the first person that brought black and white together, travelled overseas. Um, heroic Australian. More Australians should know about him. Absolutely. Mm. And there's a push, eh, to try and maybe erect a statue or something like oh, that. Oh, hopefully. Yeah. More, more people should know about our history, but been along, definitely. Impress me with an interesting fact. Oh. Have we, I, we might run out of film. Um, We've got a historian on our hands. You'd have plenty. Interesting fact is I have met Muhammad Ali. Really? Yep. All the Sydney VIP were there and I just happened to sneak an entry. And I was about to say Sydney VIP. Got my foot in the door, you know. <laughs> Murray got the foot in the door there, but yeah, I met Muhammad Ali. What was he like? Muhammad Could... Ali. Yeah. yeah. I was speechless, speechless. Yeah, hmm. fair enough. What Indigenous Affairs issue does not get enough attention? I think it's juvenile justice and our deaths in custody. You know, we're seeing people try and get a meeting with the, the Prime Minister whose families have lost their loved ones. And we're having a movement, but I think that, you know, we've got to do something with it. Might even meet, might even meet with them. Exactly. Well, that was pretty cool, Shani. I mean, is that representative of the point? Oh, I think that's representative of who I am as a person. It was very much a get-to-know-you being a newcomer to the show, but, you know, this is our flagship news and current affairs show, so it is very serious content. 
um, and we talk about all of the big issues and the big stories and putting a, a First Nations perspective on them. But, you know, we are still people and we have uh, we have to kind of get a balance of that seriousness and, and that kind of sense of humour and generous spirit that us black fellas tackle all these things with and you know the first episode which I'm sure everyone's going to go and watch if they haven't already you know we we tackle some of the most serious stories that are out there you know coronial inquest deaths in custody which um well we it was ha- a heavy one last uh, it was a heavy one uh for the launch episode oh around yeah the, the Swan River tragedy yeah yeah exactly and that was kicking off you know three years ago uh, a group of young boys were chased by police and they decided to go into the Son- Swan River over in WA, Perth, Swan River. And, you know, sadly two of those boys lost their lives, Tris Jack Simpson and Chris Strage. And so the inquest took three years but it did start on uh, Monday and, you know, we that was our focus because we sent uh, Sarah Collard, one of our NITV's journalists, over there to spend time with the families and, and speak to them and, and their journey for justice. So, you know, that was at the top of our story. So definitely getting those harder, serious topics. And, and it was a heartbreaking insight, you know, listening to mm. those parents talk about the loss of their sons and, you know, Tris Jack's dad on their, I think, the the quote that stuck with me was him saying you know you don't know when your next child's gonna be taken yeah and that was really that the the coppers uh called out for them to stop and just the fact that you know the boys just took off Mm. i mean that gives some insight into the relationship or relations state of relations between mob over there and, and the police wa police absolutely and you know we talk about that relationship, how it was then when, you know, they're weighing up a decision between running into a dangerous river or entering our justice system and and that kind of decision-making that, that that relationship shows. And also we had, you know, discussed Raise the Age campaign on if that will, you know, raising the age of criminal responsibility from 10 years old, if that would have an effect on how our young fellas see the police and, and, you know, we had some of those boys' cousins on there and how they've been treated by police. And we also had Nolan Hunter from Amnesty International get on and talk about how that relationship, especially in WA but, you know, across the country, still has so far to go, you know, which is um, and the work that needs to be done. So it was pretty heartbreaking to hear from it them but also it was yeah a really heartbreaking package yeah it was oh i was standing there sitting there crying you know but yeah. that's the reality for these families you know it's not just numbers just last week we saw three more of our people die in well, custody yeah. you know well, three three uh deaths in custody that emerged within i think it was three days mm. now they didn't all occur in the same week but we didn't hear about them yeah exactly uh, any of them any of the three until that you know monday to wednesday yeah and that was in budget estimates yeah you know that is, was a, a question told that's drawing it out of them you know yeah yeah and of course this year is the 30th anniversary of the release of the final report into the royal commission uh into aboriginal deaths in custody so the point but more broadly nitv uh news and current affairs and digital are, are having a bit of a, a look at that across the entirety of this year oh for sure yeah that's going to be a major part of our coverage because it's a major part of all of our lives you know and, and a lot of those families 
from victims of deaths in custody. They're all calling still for, you know, a meeting with the Prime Minister. So we're following that. We're following the inquest that, that seemed to be happening almost weekly at this point. And, you know, as those kind of stories emerge about, you know, from budget estimates that they're going unreported to the media and to the community, you know, we, we've got so much to follow on from and, and to get that accountability for those families. Well, the death toll, like, just keeps clicking over, doesn't it? Like, mm. it was last I seen of it, it was like 4.30 or 4.44 or something like that. And then it's just the next sort of time that you look, it's jumped up another 10 or so. Yeah. Yeah. And Nolan Hunter um, mentioned that, you know, his estimation was 4.50 plus. And, you know, when it, whenever we are doing these marches, it seems like, you know, you just got to keep redoing those signs that you're walking through the streets with, well, with that, no, no charges, you know. Is, that is the conversation when these marches happen is that people are going, well, what's the number up to now? Like what, what do we mm. put on our, our placards? And that's like a real sad state of affairs, you know. It's, it, no one can get a handle on the number when, yeah. you know, when they're looking for it. Uh, and even this week, uh, Rachel Hocking uh, reported on a story coming out of the ACT, which was an ombudsman's report into the state of relations between uh, the ACT police mm. and the Aboriginal communities around there. And that report said essentially the same things that the final report into Aboriginal deaths in custody did 30 years ago in 1991, uh, which was, you know, there needs to be uh, more cultural awareness in the police force. Mm. And other things that were in those 339 recommendations 30 years ago. Mm. And, that, and that seems to be the question on, on everyone's minds is why aren't these recommendations being implemented? You know, we've had the inquiries, we've had the reports and they continue to come out from the ACT at a state level, at a federal level. We're about to hear the Close the Gap report again and they all end up at the same conclusion that more needs to be done and nothing's changing. And so, you know, Pat Dodson mentioned until it comes from the top, these we're not going to see that action and that change that's needed. Well, the other thing that gives me the irrits uh, is that you have some people saying that the recommendations have been implemented, mm. but then uh, independent reports from you know, research institutes within uh, universities uh, have revealed that no, they haven't, and the sorts of rhetoric and political manoeuvring to uh, imply that they have um, you know, don't don't do anything to to remedy the situation either. Mm. And you need that acknowledgement that there is a problem. I think the per, the words political manoeuvring are right because when you look at any statistics, any surveys, any reports, any recommendations, you know, if you want to have a certain outcome that paints you in a good light, you're going to find it. You know, you're going to have a you're going to find a way. To, to interpret it or to put it out into the communities and say, you know, we have implemented these recommendations. But when you actually look at the fine print, they've implemented the, the recommendations that my level of government is responsible for under the X, Y and Z conditions, you know. Yeah, and that's right. until you get that kind of, until you acknowledge the problem and the issues in the reality that it exists in, we're never actually going to be able to tackle any of these things in an actual way until we get to that point. Yeah, and there's a lot of handballing it off to between mm. states and, and, and federal as well. And we've seen that again this week with, uh, you know, uh, the constitutional amendment and, and treaty making and truth-telling. 
Uh, it's enhanced that um, they're saying that the feds are saying that it's not a job for Commonwealth, make treaty mm. making and truth telling. Now, I remember covering uh, in Victoria some of the treaty stuff uh, as though it continue to move forward, but we're talking about the forums and a lot of the opposition uh, from the, um, the Liberal uh, Party down here, uh, they were saying that this is a job for the Commonwealth and the Federal and that basing their opposition to treaty making in Victoria uh, on the fact that it wasn't, you know, the, the state's prerogative, it was, it was in the remit of the Feds to do that. Mm. So it's just this really convenient, you know, handballing back and forth. And, yeah, you know, not making progress on any of it, which is pretty much the history of the last hey. since 1901. Hey, that's it. Now, the other thing that we're sort of taking into a bit of uh, agenda, our, our reporting agenda, is the whole thing around uh, the strength of our cultural uh, protection acts. Mm. And like, how many have we seen? Like, I tried to list some of them this morning and just realised how extensive that is. They're talking Duke and Gorge, obviously, sitting up top there. Yeah. We're talking Jabberong trees. Uh, we're talking uh, sealing the road up at Plummer, up on my country, mm. up there, Dungadi and Birupai. We're talking Walu. Uh, we're talking uh, putting a road through down at uh, Eagle Neck, down there in uh, Tasmania. Yeah. Like, it's just one after the other. Mm. Uh, MacArthur River Mine, I think we're going to cover a little bit of that next week. Yeah, we? yeah. We've we've got a crew on their way up to the Territory as we speak to go go out to, um, you know, Borolula and speak to the mob down there on how they're feeling about it because that's been ongoing for, for yeah. years, you know, and, and that's the – it seems like that is the case because as we, we talked about on the point, we talked about Walu, which is, you know, the, the proposed go-kart circuit – to be put on Walu, which is the, the traditional name for Mount Panorama out of Bathurst there. Uh, and that proposed construction is being opposed by the Wiradjuri people out there and they've been kind of leading the fight against it because it's supposed to be put right on top of a, a sacred women's site on the mountain and, and there's also parts of the mountain that are used as men's sites as well so it's a really sacred place um the, the entire area and you know that the proposed construction for that was on international women's day yeah which the irony is just yeah. well the irony know, was too me. great wasn't it <laughs> yeah. and that's i think that's what got susan lay the uh, federal mm. minister responsible for this sort of stuff uh, yeah. out there and she put a stay on the on the development yeah so she's um you know she's got Third, she's put a 30-day stop works and so, you know, Ryan Little, one of our journos, went out there to, to see how the Wiradjuri were c carrying on this fight to, to get permanent protection, which is what they want. And, you know, they had the federal minister in a, in a possum cloak there walking on the land and showing her exactly, you know, I hate to weigh in on it, but gee, if she put the cloak on and then she doesn't give it protection, <laughs> bloody hell. It would yep. just, you know, and this is such an anxious weight, you know. They, they've they taken her across that country and tried to show her the significance. But at the end of the day, this the the fate of that story and that land out there is in a, the department's it's hand. Story, hey, it's, it's, yeah. it's that significance. Part yeah, of the yeah. That mob. And, it, and it goes to them, you know. Now they wait. They're, they're also tackling it. In, uh, I think they're taking it to the High Court, the Supreme Court, one of the one of the courts. I don't, I forget the um, 
which the court next it was. One. Yeah, the next yeah, one they're up. taking it higher, you know, and they are doing that off their own backs. They're they're to using their own resources and their own times, and that's what we're seeing across the country. You know, the little guys, us mob, uh, are taking the the big companies, the mining companies, the government, all of the people that are trying to develop this land that seem to not understand the cultural significance. We're taking it on ourselves to do this fight and that's why, you know, it, it comes after it's happening all across the country and some of them get big headlines but others are just kind of doing the work and, you know, mm. are trying to get their stories told to get that kind of exposure to help them in their fight. Well, I think the uh, the committee or the inquiry uh, that, uh, began, they, they call it the Duke and Gorge Inquiry. Mm. Uh, so that went into the NT uh, a, a number of weeks ago to hear about um, some cultural sort of destruction uh, issues there with spe uh, specific uh, reference to the MacArthur River mine expansion uh, within the media release. It wasn't explicit, but I recognised in there uh, they're talking about um, sacred women's sites being mm. desecrated or disrespected. Uh, now, there's a story that I heard coming out of um, out of up there, uh, the MacArthur River Mine, uh, the Glencore, was that they were using a, a sacred women's uh, water site, a soak, um, to the water from there to flush out the, the uh, latrines uh, wow. in, the, in the mining camp. Um, so there's lots of little things like that. That was referenced in the media release that the inquiry put out, announcing that they were going to uh, shift across and have a bit of a look at what's going on in the NT. Mm. And I think that inquiry is now going to Tasmania and there they will hear about, I suspect, uh, the, the matter with the Eagle Hawk uh, or Eagle Neck um, where they wanted to put a road through a known uh, burial site. And also there was that uh, issue down there where they many, many decades ago, sawed off the stone engravings um, around Hobart there, I think, and, and they're in the museum. They've been returned now, but, mm. you know, there's that sort of uh, cultural uh, sort of destruction. Um, so we'll hear about that, and eventually they will table their report. So what's going to happen, I don't know. It's, it's kind of the thing that makes me so cynical and pessimistic about it is that we've seen with the budget, the last budget, um, that you know, Australia's economic recovery was hitched uh, so sort of directly to an increase in gas, uh, mm. you know, fracking and, uh, and and other forms of mining and resource uh, uh, mining. But, you know, it's, it's difficult to see. We look at it, was it, is it Narrabri with the, the gas yeah, out there? Yeah, yeah, the gas, coal. Yeah, Liverpool Plains as well. Um, it's difficult to see how this inquiry is going to present any recommendations or anything of, of substance when you have that sort of money mm. like directly opposing the sorts of things mm. that it's looking at. And I think a lot of people share that cynicism, you know, in, in approaching these issues because... Well, it was Lake Torrens again this week that uh, our SA correspondent mm. reported on. And they, they started drilling in a sacred site despite the objections of the traditional owners. Yeah. And the list goes on in this case. And I think, you know, until it's kind of understood the direct connection that our lands have to who we are and also our health, you know, we're about to do the Close the Gap report. But all of these things are so intertwined into our well-being until we can kind of recognise the importance of these lands and our country, 
you're also not going to see any kind of advancement in those other areas as well. Well, that's it. It's, it's, it is entwined and, uh, and it's kind of difficult as try as we might over the decades that we have, it's difficult to impress that upon certain institutions and, and bodies, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely it is. And it's not without lack of trying. Mm, mm. You know? Well, that's right. Uh, look, just moving on, uh, within the point episode last night, but also across this week and in the last three to four weeks, we've seen some pretty toxic masculine culture mm. coming out of Canberra, a, uh, a national sort of action in the form of uh, march and sit-ins uh, for the March for Justice on Monday. Um, and last night we heard from Lydia Thorpe um, on the point. And do we hear enough from Indigenous women uh, as part of that March for Justice movement, do you think? Well, I think that was a major criticism that we were hearing from the ground that First Nations women's voices weren't centred and there was a few criticisms on who was, you know, on the mic and not no criticism to the movement as a whole, but it seemed lacking from what people were saying that were there that there weren't as many Indigenous women really leading the charge um, and so especially with the media coverage that you saw and when we're seeing, you know, the high rates of, of Aboriginal women being the, the victims in this arena, that really needed to be addressed, I think. And, you know, in the point we did feature all of the women across the country, it wasn't that they weren't there, it's just that their voices have been, might have been lost in the crowd at some points, you know. And so there has been that kind of criticism online about the intersectionality and there's a there's a great quote going around about if we're not all free, then mm. none of us are free, you know. And when we do see so many of our women being murdered and and being assaulted and being victims of domestic violence, it is very jarring to kind of see, you know, people take to the streets. You know, when we march on Gen 26, we march for our deaths in custody, we march with, you know, for our women and the injustices and the violence inflicted on them, it is a bit, for me personally, you know, jarring to see this kind of national response and taking, you know, seeing that solidarity. So there was, there is a bit of a call to action now to take that rage and to take that staunchness and to take that solidarity and bring it to our First Nations issues because that's who needs to be centred in this conversation, to needs to be in the middle of this movement. Couldn't agree more. Hey. And, um, yeah, like we put the package together, uh, ran it out on social media as a social video, uh, and it looked great, but, yeah, there's not enough. Uh, we're not, you know, centred. And we're always saying this, you've got to centre our voices, um, uh, you know, Nothing about us without us. Yeah, and then, you know, they were so staunch. The we, I'm not saying that there weren't black women involved because there, there were and we saw them and we heard from them, but, you know, this as such a broader movement, it seemed like it kind of came from, you know, Brittany Higgins' story and, and her being so strong in her approach and standing up to the misogyny and the, the, the system that is in Parliament House, but... You know, we're just saying that this has existed for a long time and it's been going on in all of our communities and a lot of the time against First Nations women. And so we're just calling for, you know, the same to, to carry over for our plight as well because our plight is everyone's plight, right, you know? So exactly. th I guess that's what... 
that was the takeaway for me personally and also what I, I was hearing from people, especially our communities. Moving on from the, what do they call themselves down there? The, what was it the Swinging Dicks Club or something uh, like yeah, that? Oh, yeah, big, big Swinging Dicks, I think yeah. it was. <laughs> Let's move on from them to men's healing groups. And uh, you and I have both spoken recently to Troy Cassadaly. Mm. Now, you spoke to him, it was on the point this week. Uh, he's released a new album. What did, you, what did you guys get up to? Like, what were you chatting about? It was the same as what I was chatting about? I think so. I'd hope so. <laughs> if he gave you any exclusives, I'll, I'll give him a call after. But well, yeah. I heard about this new album. It was, you know, I don't want to, this is not about plugging the album. Maybe, yeah, yeah. But this year's NADOC theme is uh, Healing Country mm. um, or Heal Country. Uh, and look, that's what I heard from Troy was, it was about, him on country healing in these men's groups he had a pretty rough year uh, mm. it's an album of adversity yeah and and i think you know it goes hand in hand i think his album the world today it was sparked by you know the, the death of george floyd over in the us and the conversation and i think the world today kind of talks about the reality of of what it is like here you know what our communities are, are in mourning they're outraged it's happening all across the country and it, it, he kind of tapped into a really emotional dark place and when we were talking about you know during COVID-19 and also that added layer of that kind of Black Lives Matter movement and that kind of reckoning going on he also dealt with a lot of you know sadness in his life and he speaks about you know losing his father uh losing his friend by suicide um the his relationship breaking down uh and dealing with all of that and he kind of kept parking this album and then coming back to it and you know really having to tap into those dark places to try and finish it and so it is really about his it's a really honest i think honest and raw approach but it was his outlet you know putting it into his music so it, it is about hardship but also that healing and he focused on how he could go through all of that and he put it into his writing put it into his music and he was able to talk about how he got through which is just that largely that connecting to country and how it helped him to go back to his homelands he talked about you know sitting up there and taking a photo and that's that's what he always does when he goes home and he takes one last look at his at his um, country and how that makes him feel and how that regeneration you get from just getting your feet on the ground of where you belong and how that can really help your soul and help your healing in that process for what has been such a hard time for so many people, you know, the, the last year and a bit. Absolutely. Jack, you've been in lockdown, brother, you know? Yeah, I'm still traumatised. Yeah. I, I've, I've just come back in the office after 12 months this week. And it's weird. It's weird. And there's lots of little, you know, um, ripple effects that that has on your life because the life that we've, you know, become accustomed to uh, throughout that lockdown period, but the, the really sort of uh, heavy COVID safe kind of protocols, um, yeah, it just has ripple effects in other areas of your life. Mm. And none of that, you know, all the hard stuff doesn't stop because it's COVID, you know, just because you get a lockdown doesn't mean people aren't passing away it doesn't mean that you, mm. you know it adds that strain on your relationships and 
You know, I think Troy is kind of... Well, sorry business is a major one. And oh, absolutely. That, uh, in, the, in the height of the lockdown around the country, or the lockdowns around the country at different times, but mm. uh, it was about, you know, a big one was not being able to get back for sorry business. Mm, which is such a significant process and, you know, that cultural ceremony and being able to... Well, community. Say goodbye and be there with everyone and, and for that to be taken Maintaining those away. kinship systems mm. under moments of stress and, you know, um, that's all important stuff. But, look, let's have a listen to the conversation that I had with uh, old mate Troy Cassadaly. Take it black. So, Troy, lovely to catch up with you. Uh, I was down in Adelaide over the long weekend and you were playing down there as part of Wome Adelaide playing to uh, a COVID-safe concert of that size, did it affect the atmosphere at all? Look, I, I thought the atmosphere at Wyoming Adelaide with Midnight Oil was fantastic. It didn't affect anything. People were still allowed to stand up and they were still allowed to enjoy themselves. So if that's the new normal for us, Jack, then I'm, I'm sort of up for it. And I think a gig's a gig and I loved every minute of it. And the, the vibe on stage, I hope that everyone in the crowd felt what we were feeling on stage because it was pretty special. Yeah, look, I think the crowd did. We did a couple of Vox Pops uh, around the grounds, I suppose, with the audience. There was a great range in terms of age groups with the audience. They all seemed to be pretty enthusiastic about seeing Midnight Oil. Um, did you end up playing on the uh, Saturday night with the Oils as well, or was that just them on their own? No, that was them on their own. They, they wanted to do just like a two-hour rock show, and that was, that was obviously not, not part of uh, the Macarada project. Right. I think Wayne Madeleine got them for that show just for something different. And, it, you know, it's like it's really good to let, their, let them stretch their legs and, and be a rock band like they are anyway. But um, their love and uh, affection for the Macarada project has been just wonderful to witness too because, you know, I've been around for a fair while in country music, but I've never really walked in those circles and never yep. really cared to. Tell you the truth, and, and to see the respect they're giving myself and Dan Sultan and and mm. Tasman and Young Alice Sky and Leah Flanagan and them, it, it's just beautiful. Well, it was beautiful seeing all of you fellas up on stage um, for the Macarada Project uh, performances, and but also that big finale, Beds Are Burning, uh, on Monday night. Full of energy, that one. Uh, Frankie Yammer was dancing away next to Pete. Um, how did you go? How did your knees hold up? Were you dancing around a bit? Oh, well, you know, my knees aren't what they <laughs> used to be, Jack. But um, it was incredible to be beside Frankie because I've known him for about 30 years, you know. And he has this really beautiful vulnerability as an artist too. But when he's up there rocking out, he can absolutely rock it out with the best of them, you know. And so I, I felt really, really uh, fulfilled. And to be up there with Dan Sultan and all these friends that we've had for a long time, it just had a really wonderful feel. We had to cut one song out. We didn't get to do uh, Dead Heart as well. And uh, that, that's been a big part of our two finale songs as well. But because of the curfew there we had in Rome Adelaide, we had to pull up short. Yep. And, you know, it was just, one, like I say, it was good to see that people are responding to the statement from the heart in a different way. And it's, it's up to Midnight Oil, I suppose. They've always used their music as as a, a statement to get people's attention. And they're, they're definitely doing that. It's been wonderful they point them over to sign petitions and to actually raise awareness of what the statement from the heart was all about, you know? Yeah, it was pretty pointed in uh, that, you know, they were pushing uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, uh, constitutional amendment. Um, they did not shy away from that at all. But, you know, that, as you say, is 
pretty much form for Midnight Oil in the past. They've always been that strident, haven't they? They, they really have, and, and they've never been afraid to uh, to speak the truth. And and when you hear the lyrics, they mean as much as they did when I was a young fella dancing around the crowd back in 1982, yep. as much as uh, they mean right now in 2021, you know? Yeah. Well, listen, you've got a new album coming out later this month, so it's been a big month for you. Uh, I had the pleasure of listening to just four songs uh, off the album, and congratulations, firstly, but I'm just interested in hearing from you about... I'm always interested in the creative process behind, you know, artworks um, or pieces of, you know, uh, albums, whatever it might be. Uh, What was your creative process behind this? Look, um, the creative process for this record was really, really different because normally when I'm writing a record, I'm, I'm sort of almost on tour and doing mm. it. But this time around, um, after losing my father, um, that, that sort of threw me under the bus a little bit. I, I didn't expect that. He, he unfortunately took his own life. He was very sick and um, it was a bad trying time for me. And I think what it did, Jack, it, it, it sent me into myself and I got a little bit hard towards everyone around me for a while. And yeah. that hardness came out in the songs too. And yeah. Like the, the, the opening track, Back on Country, is not a hard song. It's, it's more of a unity song. I've always loved songs that try and glue people up and bring them together. Yep. But uh, there's a lot of other content on there. You know, um, my first cousins, a lot of them have been incarcerated, so I wanted to make sure I covered their stories as closely as I could. And that came from sitting around a real campfire at home, you know, up on our men's camp and... Mm. and everyone doing a bit of a debrief. We only do it once a year, but um, that, that was a big part of the forming of this record too, was our debriefs up there at a men's camp where all our uncles and first cousins all get together. And now our sons come down with us. Yep. And uh, and that that's where the record really reflected probably the strongest to me is the fact that it's all those stories that we, we talk about and debrief about that um, made it onto this record as well. Yeah, well, that, uh, well the two that you mentioned there, I've heard of parole and doing time. Yeah. Um, Parole, big bluesy swagger and riff. Uh, there's some growling bad dog lyrics in there. I like that one a lot. That was right up my alley. But doing time was a lot more tender, um, you know, and your voice was a lot more raw as well. Uh, so yeah, listeners, I, I urge you to go and check these uh, this album out when it's dropped because there's a great range on there as uh, of, of tracks on there. Would you? Um, what would you say? Uh, you know, are you heading in that direction? Well, Jack, I, th- I think this record's been in me for a long time, but and and a lot of people are a bit surprised at all all the uh, I got a dog here. <laughs> people people are surprised, I suppose, at um, the fact that I've been a guitar player for a long time and I play a lot of guitar live, but never ended up making a lot of records where I play guitar. Yeah, this right. time I was allowed to be the guitar player again, and um and I think that surprised a lot of people. Look, it's it's going to scare a lot of people this record at, at different stages, but I think it brings you back with some of the, the, the gleaming lights that come through in some of the songs, you know. Yep. I was going through a pretty heavy time with my marriage. Yep. And I was going through a pretty heavy time after losing my father. And those two things combined, I think, really formed this record. So, you know, if it's it's I, I sort of make records to drive to a lot. I don't know whether people like records and stuff to listen to when they're doing road trips and things. Yep. But to give this record a real chance, I think you've got to really chuck it in before you take a long drive and and, and listen to it as an album and don't just um, go through and browse. Like a lot of people, they, they graze through records, they pick out songs or they flick things. This is a sort of record I think you've got to just let it play yeah. all the way through to see where it takes you. 
old school type record instead of these uh, you know, streaming service type records, which, yeah. as you say, are pretty much com- compiled for browsing. That's right. And, and Paul Kelly said this really interesting thing in an interview one day. He was talking about how people have become grazers. They, they, haven't, they haven't sort of gotten into that mindset of putting a vinyl on, for instance, or putting a CD on and listen to the record from track one through to 13 or 14. Um, yeah. They've become browsers where they pick singles and all that sort of stuff. But um, I think I've made this album as an album. It's, it's, it's a whole piece of work. And every song uh, on this record actually goes back to the centre of the whole thing, which is the world today. It's, it's where I did see myself in the world today. And, and then when, when you see the songs and they, the way they grew, grew and, you know, the, the, the artistic part of it was, brother, I, I started playing bass and drums again during COVID because I couldn't go and play live gigs. Yeah. And it was just the best experience to get down there and create music and record it. I was recording it in this little silly little system I got down in the studio there. And I was playing drums for the first time and bass and then, um, you know, writing songs. And every couple of days I'd come up with a new little thing and listen through my speakers or listen in the headphones. And that was where the album really got a roll on because I had all this time on my hands, you know? Yeah. Look, there were some positives through that really challenging period of uh, well, eight months down here in Melbourne. Um, good to think that that's one of them. Um, look, when you read in the media release that, you know, this is a really personal album and blah, 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 but this sounds as though it was like dead set, really personal album for you with the, the sorts of things that you're saying around your marriage, the loss of your father. Um, like how... And being non-country, you know, and hearing those sorts of stories. Um, is this something, like, this process, yeah, just getting back to that creative process, yeah. is this, has there ever been a more challenging album in your, you know, discography? Oh, I, I reckon this has been the most challenging to write. Yeah. Because yeah. of its honesty. But there was also, um, there was also, I didn't have a starting point though, Jack. And, and a, a lot, of, lot of the times when you've got a record to, to make, you sort of have a starting point of two or three songs and you think to yourself, oh, well, uh, I can build on this. And it's like putting a football team together, you know? It's sort of yeah. like you've got a few marquee players you can build around, you know? And I didn't ha- actually have those marquee songs, you know? I, I, I struggle with it. And, and like I said, uh, you know, in, in some of the, the bits we put in the bio, I did look at myself in the mirror and wonder what I had to say, you know, uh, during <laughs> COVID, it was bad enough losing dad, but it was it was another thing, uh, having troubles at home too with my marriage. And then I found myself when the borders opened back home to Grafton, I found myself getting back there. But I, I often talk to my late grandmother, and she still sort of gives me a bit of guidance here and there. And I know she does. Yeah. And I was very close to her, and I found myself asking her questions that I asked her this question in a dream when I was back home at my mum's place, and she was very frank and come back to me and said, only you can find the answers. The answers actually aren't here back at home. You've got to go home and sort your own shit out, you know? Yeah. Well, that's... That's sort of what she'd say if she was right now, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a lot of people, uh, you know, white fellas, non-Indigenous people, uh, they still haven't got a, a handle on the importance of getting back to country or even just what it is when, you know, we're saying we need to get back on country. Um is this something that you've done throughout your career? Uh, you know, these, I know there's a lot of these men's groups that have started to, um, you know, um, emerge, uh, more recently back when I was a young fella, you'd never heard of men's men's groups or anything like that. Um, and culture was difficult 
thing to sort of maintain, particularly, you know, in the sort of part of the country where you and I are from along that stretch of the eastern coast. Um, have you always been, you know, connected to, uh, you know, the, the, the spirituality and the countryside of our culture? Yeah, I have. And, and I've always made a point of making sure my kids feel it too when we get back home. Uh, Mum still lives in the middle of 90 acres down on Gumbanga country there on the way to yep. Coffs Harbour. And, um, and we have big ties to Bunjalung, of course, through my grandfather. So, so there's, there's all the things that make you feel fulfilled when you get home. But, you know, if I take the kids when they were tiny and um, show them how to get jubbles, uh, we catch turtles when I go up there with my son and we still eat turtle and we still practice things that have been practiced since I was a little child. Yeah. And my grandparents were around and aunties were teaching us stuff. But we didn't realise at the time, Jack, that you were being taught about spirituality. Mm. That wasn't something that we were taught. You just it it just it just happened. And it's it's that's why I feel so sorry for the stolen generation, people who can't go back and find where they're from and they wonder why they can't feel things, is because they haven't been raised and immersed in it on their way up uh, through their life. And unfortunately, those, those formative years when you're a tiny child and you're listening to stories around a fire from your elders, um, they're the things that sink in the most. And they're my fondest memories of, of being a kid and the taste of turtle, the taste of catfish out of the river, out of the Clarence River or out of the, the Boyd River or out of the Man River or the Arara. All the places we fished and camped as kids um, are all still vitally important to me. And and geez, I, I go back there looking for answers a lot, even at 51. Um, I still lean on it a lot and I still get a lot from it. And I think it's the fact that, you know, even when I go back with my son now, the first thing we did when we got back to our, our men's camp and well, we got out of the car, we took our, sh our shirts off and walked straight into the river. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and all our problems seemed to just go away. <laughs> and and it was, it's an amazing feeling. And I know that a lot of non-Indigenous people are starting to understand that feeling thing because that, that's why Back on Country is an important song to have out. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I, I spoke to that fellow who had a, a young mate who got those satellite coordinates put on his chest in a tattoo of his favourite surfing spot where he's camped since he was three. And that, that's his connection to country, but that's also his responsibility to look after Jack when he goes back, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And look, and I, I, I want other people to be able to feel a little bit too. Even listening to you uh, recall, you know, those rivers and that country, I'm, just, I'm feeling homesick sitting here, not down in Melbourne. Yeah, it must be, must be like oh, that yeah, for you too. Um, You're up in Brisbane there. Must yeah, be it, it does drag on me a bit, you know, and you, you'd know the feeling, but the, I had to do a TV show over two days and they took me back down to around Brunswick Heads where I spent a couple of years living up that way too, you know. Yeah. And I sat on that river and I remember sitting on that river as a 22-year-old asking questions of it, you know, because the, the land just talks. And I remember sitting there as a young fella going, just tell me, old river, tell me where I should be. What Am I doing the right thing, you know? And here I was when I went back there last year, <laughs> an, old, <laughs> an old hairy ass glory now, um, sitting there saying, I found the answers and thank you for being there because now I've been able to go back and revisit that Brunswick Heads River 
and be able to sort of say, you know, the answers were always there. All I had to do was listen. <laughs> Take it black. Yeah, so it was good talking with Troy. Realised that uh, he's from a part of the world that I'm from. Probably, you know, got uh, share cousins and stuff. Yeah. Uh, people uh, up the back there. I used to do a little bit when I was working for the Tweed Byron Land Council, travelling down there with Uncle Roy Gordon. The older Uncle Roy Gordon. Um, but look, I always wonder when I listen to Troy talking about this stuff, how that kind of goes down with that Tamworth Country Music Festival crowd. Mm. Because, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, non-Indigenous people that are, you know, out there and there's a whole history, particularly around Tamworth and, and you know, that's up close to where I'm from as well. They haven't... You know, gotten on with blackfellas that well. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just wonder when he is so staunch in in talking about these sorts of things, and yet he's held in such high regard and esteem in that world. Just how that sort of goes. Uh, yeah. You know, in that sphere. That's interesting. Hey, and it, it's I guess it's also that crossover when you think about, you know, to mob so many communities love country music. Yeah. Yep. You know, and it, it, it has always been like one of our old, old school things that's always been part of our, you know, when you're sitting around and your old aunties and uncles, they always put on country. That's their go-to. But when you think of like those kind of roots and, um, you know, coming from over in the US and country music and some mm. of those themes and, you know, it's a testament to Troy too because, you know, he's always been very real in what he's what he's talking about. And, you know, River Boy has been. Yep playing in my head <laughs> since well, 1994 thing. but you know he talks about the the struggles of for black fellas and just being a yeah and we've know. heard we've done packages with uh, mob up there that have played uh, Tamworth country music festival for decades and we heard from them you know just how racist it could be uh, in the early days but there's still you know that that legacy there that they experienced mm -hmm. so it's not you know he would be feeling that um and in this album, I, have, I haven't heard the entire thing. I think I got a, a preview of four or five songs. Yeah. And some of them don't even fit neatly within that country thing, which I like. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, some of them are pretty raw and rough, you know. It was almost one of them was very Tom Waits-like. Uh, another one was a real sort of rocker type thing. And even Troy himself, he said, you know, it was more of a departure yeah. uh, on, on elements of the album. So. Yeah, it's good to see him sort of genre hopping across and, and, and testing the the perimeter of, of that country music camp. Yeah, he's been doing it a long time, so good on him. Keep pushing the boundaries and hopefully the, you know, the entire genre, everyone seems to be moving forward. You know, Dixie Chicks dropped the Dixie. That was pretty, yeah, 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 they did. I think it was last year, the year before, they dropped the Dixie from it. Now they're just the Chicks. So I think, you know... Small changes, or you know, probably not small for them. They don't think that's pretty small, but it mm. seems like you know the the entire genre is getting with the times. Giving a bit of a shake. Hey, now what have you been? What what do you got planned? What's coming up? Oh, what don't I have? Now planned, that you're Jack? just you're you're the host co-host <laughs> of the point. Um, are you still doing some, some work out in the road and stuff? Yeah, so I'm pretty much full-time um, out gathering stories for the point and, you know, hitting the road, doing a bit more longer feature stuff, which, uh, yeah, cool. you know, I'm really enjoying. I got to sit down with Troy as well. But also, you know, last week there's a bit of a, you know, truth-telling movement going across the country, but I got to 
head up to Swansea, um, just south of Newcastle in New South Wales, north of Central Coast where I'm from. So, you know, it's a real popular hotspot with the um, fishes. It's really coastal. It's beautiful up there. Uh, and they have an island there called Coon Island. Coon Island. Coon Island, yeah. How did it get that name, dare I ask? Well, that that is the kind of the core of this truth-telling moment because, you know, you have all those kind of conversations going on about, you know, people Coon trying cheese. to be too woke, yeah, and they just want to change everything. But mm. what's really interesting about this story is that the the origin of Coon Island mm. is derogatory and racist. So the man... Shock horror. I know. <laughs> Heard it here first, people. <laughs> Take it black. Nearly fell out of my chair. <laughs> well, it was named after a man called Herbert Heaney, who was uh, the first permanent resident on the island, and he was a coal miner. And so he would come home covered in coal dust. And so because he would wear blackface most mm. of the time, he earned the nickname Coon. And so while people think it might be, you know, just Mr Coon and that's his name and that's why we call it that and they hold on to that kind of legacy of him, it's actually a racist derogatory name and that's just kind of stuck around. And so there's a massive push up in Swansea to have that history acknowledged about why it's called that and it is race, it is it is defamatory and that's how it started. And the, the local Aboriginal community and the land council there are pushing for it to be changed and to have that recognition. And there is opposition, as we knew there would be, if anyone's been in a comment section <laughs> in the last 10 years, it's, um, you know, it's horrible out there and that they've really copped it for being kind of the front line of this conversation. So I went up there and I spoke with them. I also spoke with, you know, local people uh, that refer to themselves sometimes as coonies, you know, um, that grew up around the island and, you know, they they want their history to be acknowledged and they're, they're fearful that they'll lose their history. Um, mm. So they're trying to find ways forward, which is... Um, you know, possibly dual naming for a local Aboriginal name uh, or... Can't see that working. Well, sorry, dropping the coon. Ah. Let's be let's be very clear that, that that's what they're pushing for. The council is open to public consultations at the moment. They're pushing to drop it but possibly name it after Heaney. So his okay. actual last name and doing a dual name with Heaney and a local word. But, you know, that's all out to public consultations at the moment, but those are kind so was, of the, the main propositions. Was Coon Island just, uh, you know, the, the name that people knew of it locally or was it actually, you know, gazetted as Coon Island? No, or gazetted. Signs or? Yeah. So I met up with, um, you know, uh, locals from Landcare who took care of Coon Island um, for, for the last years. There, there actually used to be people living on it. So there were about 70 households um, on the kind of the reserve little shacks, you know, um, and they lived there under social housing, I think it was, or housing development. Um, but they were all demolished or knocked down and so the last resident left in 1994. And so it was Coon Island, the place, the community, and some of the fellas that I spoke to um, brought down history books you know, and it was the history of Coon Island. You know, it's not just a place that they've just put up a sign and, you know, made up a plaque. This was wow. what its name was and has been 
until now. It still is. 2021, it still is the name. And that's the process and there's been a lot of backlash. And, you know, the, the people I spoke to from Bataba Aboriginal Land Council, you know, they were reluctant to speak because they've really copped it. You know, A Current Affairs done a story on this and I think they're, I'm sure, very reasonable survey they did. It found 90-something percent of people don't want it to be changed, you know, and people yeah, and in a small community, you know, you know the people that yeah. are calling for these changes and they've really copped it and, you know, they were pretty apprehensive to talk to us but being NITV, they know that, you know, we're going to centre the First Nations perspective and, you know, do do their story and give them a platform um, for their views and what they're um, trying to push for and hopefully, you know, we see something that respects their history and, and you know, this the millennia of history of the Aboriginal people on that land yeah, as yeah. well as those calling for the, the, the community of, of what is known as the island, I'll call it, to finish. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, we see this around the place uh, to do with massacre sites as well. Absolutely. We want, you know, Darky Creek or, you know, Blood Blood Creek. Um, there's a whole heap of them. Jim Crow Creek. There mm. was a Jim Crow Creek down here up near Dalesford that someone told me about. And then, you, you know, you some controversy comes up people um you know local uh, approach their local councils to have the name changed and things and then you hear people advocating for the name to remain the same come mm. up with excuses like you know it's not referring to say with this jim crow one it's not referring to the jim crow sort of uh movement or legislation uh over in the u.s it's something else entirely or you know doesn't relate to aboriginal people that's not why we call it darky creek or whatever mm. um but, you know, when you scratch at the surface, it does. Yeah. It is. Um, and, and, yeah, it's just this kind of like final resistance to, to the truth-telling and recognising the past. That's right. And truth-telling, you know, it is – it's not meant to be an easy process because the truth isn't something that people want to hear. You know, it isn't a nice reality of, of the past that it, it is really dark and it is really frightening for some people and so there is that resistance and that backlash to, to know that that's the land that they've been living on was stolen and a lot of atrocities happened here and so that kind of reckoning is still being pushed for and at the same time they're hoping that if this is successful for that island name to be changed, they're going to look at other areas. The, the council wants to look at Black Ned's Bay, which is, you know, Five mm. minutes from there. We went there yeah. as well. And that popped up and they've got Black Ned's Bay and Black Ned's Point and they're hoping that that kind of momentum, if they get this through, that will open up people's minds to having the conversation and being able to simply look a little deeper and once they know that the history of a place or what the truth actually is, that maybe they'll be more open to doing what's right, I think. Mm. Well, yeah. they'd be open to discussing it. And yeah. Putting it to a voting council and then nothing will happen. There's me being pessimistic. <laughs> hey, the there he is. <laughs> but I'll tell you a funny story, and this is mm. why I have my cynicism. Yeah. Back in the 90s, uh, my great-grandfather, he uh, approached National Parks and Wildlife and, and put in uh, applications for native title uh, for a place uh, where we're from uh, called Blackman's Point. Now, Blackman's Point... 
uh, is identified as such in colonial documents going back to the 1820s uh, when Port Macquarie was uh, first invaded. So the area we know now is Port Macquarie. Um, and uh, you know, those red coats were going up the, uh, the, the river there and they seen a bunch of my, you know, four, four uh, fathers uh, camped on the point there and they, you know, in the documentation call it Black Men's Point. So anyway, 200 years or whatever later, Pop puts in uh, these applications and he hears back that, no, it wasn't called Black Men's Point because there was Aboriginal people there, even though it was documented in colonial uh, you know, mm. ar- archives. It's called Black Men's Point because a white fella named someone Blackman lived in that area and was given that that uh, parcel of land. So couldn't get it. Uh, there's an undocumented massacre site that happened around there as well. Wow. And I just remember after going through this for a number of years and we heard about it in the late, uh, heard back from you know that process in the late 90s. And I remember my pop saying, if we can't get a place called Black Man's Point, we're all effed. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's where my cynicism is sort of based on is it's a hard slog when you're trying to convince people and you've even got the colonial documentation there and they still say, nah. Exactly. It's just this real sort of, uh, elusive and agile rationale behind the sorts of decisions they make. Yeah, and especially, and that is kind of echoed in this story, you know, when I was speaking to the fellas who do want to, you know, keep Heaney's legacy or, you know, keep the name itself, um, it's not that they don't know the history. They do. They understand why he was called that. They just don't care for it. Yeah. You know, so sometimes the system the facts are in our favour and still we're not seeing that change. So I hear you in that cynicism and it, it's really real, that fight, but we got Don't to get still old keep and cynical going. Like yeah, hey. yeah. Don't, do it. <laughs> Don't listen to him, everyone. We've got to keep going. <laughs> well, look, uh, what have we got coming up? Just to end on a higher note, uh, what what can we look forward to apart from uh, Coon Island uh, coming up, that that package in a uh, a future episode of the Point? Yeah, what's, what's on the horizon? Well, yeah, that is coming up, and like we mentioned, um, we do have a crew going up to the Territory at the moment, and they'll be looking into Macarthur River Mine and all of those issues up there. We do also have the anniversary of Joe Roburn over in WA, John Roburn, sorry. Um, and we'll also be looking into that, uh, the Brumbies down at Mount Kosciuszko. Was this the John Pat one over yeah, at Roeburn? Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah. John Pat over in Roeburn. Yep. Um, that's over in WA. We'll also be speaking about that anniversary coming up and, and since the Royal Commission. And we're also looking at the Brumbies. We've sent Ryan Little and his Akubra out again. <laughs> Down into Mount Kosciuszko to to see, you know, what's going on with the feral species. and Wild horses could not drag me away from watching. (laughs) Yeah. Keep a look out. I'm hoping he did a piece to camera on the back of one. Yeah, with the hat. (laughs) Real real country western-like, but, um, you know, one can only hope. You'll have to tune in and find out. Yeah, well, I'm hoping off the back of that to get him down here to uh, the the Barmer. Uh, down Victoria, oh, on the on the river actually, on the mm. border, same sort of thing. There's a little um, you know national park there that's uh, got some brumbies in it, and completely the opposite. A lot of people uh, advocating for these horses not to be culled, and um, and 
putting some pretty strange posters up around the place about people who are, you know, traditional owners that are saying, you know, they're, they're destroying or damaging country. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Well, we'll have to get Ryan Little... Brumby correspondent, down, yeah. yeah. Yep. Having ride down from the overflow. <laughs> yeah. Having said that, you know, in, in the show, the points, you know, our big season opener last night, that fellow went out to Bathurst, he did Walu, he did Warragamba Dam, we're doing yeah. the Brumbies, he's hitting the road, so I don't know what, no, who no, I need to speak to. Frequent flyer points up somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Frequent. Quiet 12 months. <laughs> frequent rider. We keep him <laughs> on the back of the horse, send him around the country. You'll be there. Just take him three months. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's all that we've got time for. Uh, thank you for joining me for this episode, Shani. No worries. Thanks for having me, Jack. Now, listeners, uh, you can get this episode and future episodes. Just uh, subscribe on your preferred podcast listening app. We've got an account on Twitter. We've got one over there on Instagram that goes all right. Uh, join in the conversation with the hashtag Take It Black. And uh, look, until I'm able to join you next, uh, just remember to take it black. Oh,